0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candace Keener joined by staff writer Jane McGrath. Hey there Candace. Hey Jane. You know, it's funny, I feel like we keep rehashing the same theme over and over, but it's just so interesting. Uh, the formula is someone Greek comes over to Egypt or Africa and sees that things are different and then goes back home and tells people about it.
1: Yeah, Are you getting a
0: sense of deja vu, too? Yeah, definitely.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And we're talking about Herodotus, and he is a Greek who came over about the 5th century to Egypt, and uh, he noticed something really interesting, and that was that the women were in the marketplace trading and doing all that um, market stuff, while the men sat at home and did all the weaving. And he thought this was really odd, especially compared to how gender issues were going on in in Greece at that time.
0: Yeah, and so he went back home, and he actually uh, told people, whether he wrote it or said it, I don't know. But apparently, he mentioned that the Egyptians have reversed the ordinary practices of mankind. And that's a pretty loaded statement, if you think about it. Herodotus seemed to think that um, we were God-ordained for women to sit at home and weave and, and do the wash, and men were the ones who were supposed to go out into the marketplace and trade and barter and make the world go round with money. But what's interesting is that his observations weren't entirely accurate. And we see this all the time. Someone looks at a very small slice of life in a society and sort of generates opinions and thoughts about how the entire society must work. And while he propounded this notion that Egyptians must be these very forward-thinking, or to him, backward-thinking People who had an entirely different type of society that was more like a, a matriarchy than a patriarchy was incorrect, actually. And we asked ourselves a question at how stuff works. And that was, were ancient Egyptians the first feminists? And our colleague, Christian Conger, wrote an article by that very same title. And after reading her research and conducting a little bit on our own, we were hoping to come to you guys and tell you something really exciting about how uh, feminism was not a brand new thing back in the 20th century. The ancient Egyptians had discovered it a long time ago, and they'd already started a society by those rules and precedents, but that wasn't exactly the case.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's true that the they were sharing sort of gender equalities that were really ahead of their time, and certain things that we're still struggling with today, they achieved back then, but uh, there's a lot of caveats to that statement. But one interesting point is uh, one expert in this field, Dr. Joanne Fletcher, talks about the duality of male and female in in ancient Egypt, and you can see this in the gods and goddesses that they had in their religion, but also... Obviously, even political power, you can see in the list of God, or list of uh, kings and pharaohs that women held the uh, position at least uh, six times, I believe it is. We all know Cleopatra, obviously, from the first century B.C., but there were also women who won each in the 22nd century B.C., long, as well as the 18th, 15th, the 14th, and the 12th.
0: And I think something that these female rulers struggled with was the idea of being a powerful woman and still preserving their femininity. And we know that a couple of those rulers were forced, uh, not unlike Joan of Arc, who we discussed in an earlier podcast, to put on men's clothing or take on
1: more masculine mannerisms in order to be assertive and respected. Yeah, this is one of the most fascinating um, female pharaohs of ancient Egypt, and her name is Hatshepsut. And she was the daughter of a king, Thutmose First, also known as Thutmosis, but I've heard it both ways. So Hatshepsut was married to her half-brother, Thutmose II, who inherited the throne. And so although she didn't have a lot of power at this time, her husband died. And she didn't have a son to take the throne. So the power went to her husband's son by another marriage. And at this time, pharaohs were very well known for having what's known as lesser or minor wives. And so he had a son by one of these wives, and he became Thutmose III. So when her husband, Hatshepsut's husband, died, Thutmose III was still a baby. And so uh, Hatshepsut decided to take over as regent in the meantime until the baby grew up. And by about the seventh year into her role as regent, she was officially crowned king it's interesting that it took that long. Also, what's especially fascinating about this period is that she started gradually more and more wearing men's clothes, like you were saying, Candace, and she actually uh, put on a false beard, which I find the most curious of all, and there are different theories about why she did this, perhaps, like, she had herself portrayed at least this way in the, in the pictures of the records that we have, and maybe um, the significance of these pictures and their culture meant that if it was portrayed that way, then that's what she would become. She would become as powerful As a male king, which I found interesting, and but I think it should be noted that she was no man hater by any means because she allowed her stepson Thutmose to share power once he got old enough. After she died, a few decades later, her stepson was still ruling. Near the end of his role there was a movement to destroy the remnants of Hatshepsut's rule, and there's a lot of different theories about that. One is um, that. It was an act of vengeance, perhaps. But another is that because her name was actually removed from documents that said the lists of the kings... It's believed that maybe Thutmose III wanted history to remember the list of kings in order like Thutmose 1, 2 II, and 3 without interruption, especially female interruption.
0: What Hatshepsut did for her stepson is actually pretty magnanimous if you look at the history of uh, Egyptian minor wives aka concubines because they were known sometimes to actually off their husbands to put their sons on the throne. So there was a real power play at court Mm -hmm. where women could get an upper hand just as easily by being, you know, good strategists. And if you hearken back in your memory to a podcast Jane and I did many, many months ago about the first lady of the United States If you look at different women who sat at court with their husbands, whether they were queens or whether they held some sort of lesser power, like a a regent or or even a priest, and a priest was considered pretty powerful, actually, it's almost like this first lady idea where you come into power by virtue of being married to someone who's Mm -hmm. the most powerful man in the country,
1: So even powerful women actually owed their power to a man? They did. They still owe their power to
0: a man, and they could choose to wield it in whatever way they wanted. I think that there were some women at court who took on more traditional, what we conceive of as traditional roles of being a wife and a mother. Some certainly used their wealth to leverage uh, leisure for themselves, you know, nonstop manicures (laughs) and hairstyling and, you know, tours around the grounds and their own chariots, and there were others like Nefertiti, who I'm really interested in, who took advantage of her power alongside her husband to help him And sort of a, in a Hillary Bill, Billary sort of way, she helped him come up with new policies. For the nation, different types of rules and reformed their system of government. And in addition to that, she took a major part in helping to execute different prisoners. And when her husband died, there are some historians who suggest that she very quietly just assumed role as king or queen, really, but stepped into his shoes. Mm And then others think that some somewhere along the marriage, she offended him somehow, and he got very upset, and so he elevated a daughter to her place. But you look back at Nefertiti, and especially just to look at that very famous bust of hers, you know, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, It's, yeah. it's a, a portrait, really, in, in three dimensions, and we see that she has a very serene look on her face. And I guess that's how I've always imagined ancient Egyptian women with the coal-lined eyes and the very elaborate, you know, hairstyles and just being a part of society, but not really being leaders. But that
1: wasn't the case unless
0: you're from a lower
1: class. Yeah, we should make that uh, distinction that even though there was a very remarkable forward-thinking equality of the genders at this time, there wasn't the same thing when it came to class. Upper-class women had a a lot more power than lower-class women. They did. And most women in Egyptian society enjoyed some type
0: of... Freedom, or what we would think of as freedom. I think that even if you were poor, there was still ch- some sort of choice in what vocation you had. You could choose to be a farmer. You could choose to be a weaver, a servant, or even a construction worker. And if you were very, very poor, you could be an entertainer at court. And whether you danced or you played some sort of instrument, the king even occasionally recognized these people as important to his kingdom mm-hmm. and would allow them to participate in different governmental events or uh state ceremonies and so they played an important role too but what our you know our greek friend may have been referring to as far as the progressiveness of egyptian society was the legal system because even if women in ancient Egypt, were considered wives and mothers first
1: and foremost. They had some pretty interesting legal rights. Yeah, they could own their own property, interestingly. Uh, they could make wills, like uh, deciding who, which of their children would um, receive what of their wealth. Uh, in court, they could represent themselves. They could sue people. Uh, they could also get divorces. And divorce, I think, is an interesting case because... It brings up the idea of marriage and the legal idea of marriage in in ancient Egypt, which is curious because when you got married, you didn't necessarily need to get the courts involved. The law wasn't involved at all. You could just have a party, you know, and uh, celebrate the fact that you're getting married. But divorce was certainly a legal issue. It says there was a similar rule, I think, if I remember from my research on the Code of Hammurabi, about uh, women could get actually some of their dowry back and property as well in a divorce. And the same thing happened in ancient Egypt. And one point that I find really funny is that a manual dating back to about the 25th century BC, I think, uh, advised men to not take women to court. And I'm not quite sure whether this had to do because it was indelicate to do so or because women were really good when they represented themselves in court. I don't know. I'm going to get what they were really good
0: when they <laughs> represented themselves in court. So as Jane mentioned, marriage wasn't even really regarded as an institution. It wasn't ordained by the church. It wasn't ordained by government. But if you did not have a lot of money, it was pretty necessary, because if you were pretty poor, you needed to get married, to have a lot of children, to help with all the different you know types of, of labor and chores that you had to carry out in order to really succeed and pull ahead in this society. And like Jane was saying... As far as women leaving a marriage, it was pretty easy and you could take your money with you. And it seems like they looked at, at marriage and at union between a man and woman as a pretty casual thing because premarital sex wasn't even frowned upon.
1: I found that really interesting. I had no idea. I'd like to know more about more civilizations that that had the same kind of rules about premarital sex.
0: I guess it would have to do with the fact that if marriage was a social pact and it didn't have any... Reference back to the church or back to religion. Mm-hmm. I mean, who is there to condemn it? Yeah, I don't know.
1: One interesting role that a woman could choose uh, didn't have to go into marriage. You could also enter the priesthood. Interestingly, they could become uh, God's wife. Is sort of uh, this offered women a lot of political power? Interestingly. But I think she had to have a
0: little bit of money to accomplish that. The yeah. same way she could be on a jury, but she had to have a little bit of money to do that, too.
1: Yeah, and speaking of religion, we were talking about Nefertiti earlier. Uh, one major thing that she did was that she and her husband were monotheists. And this was really unusual at the time. Um The culture was, in general, worshipping many gods. Nefertiti and her husband, uh, Akhenaten, uh, worship the sun god alone. They actually outlawed worship of other gods, of polytheism. And it's believed that Nefertiti herself was the driving force behind this, uh, this rule, and it actually caused, uh, gave her a lot of enemies, let's say.
0: She took this idea very, very seriously, and she worshipped him with great fervor. And then we see a little bit later on, Cleopatra was really the last great I yes, matriarch of ancient Egypt before the tides turned and ancient Egypt became the very, very early stages of, of modern Egypt, what it is today, as we see Egyptian culture sort of um, ebbing and more Christian culture coming in. And up until a certain time in ancient Egypt, much of the population was illiterate And I think maybe only 2% of Egyptian society could actually read and write. And an even smaller fraction of that were women who could read and write. But when Cleopatra came along, she was very interested in making sure that women were educated and that the people of Egypt had a role to play in intellectual circles. And so her reign marked the emergence of the great library at Alexandria. And so... As that became more of a part of Egyptian culture, women, I think, found new careers for themselves as philosophers or scribes or, or learned people or academics at the very least. And then when Christian monks came in, I think in 4, 415 AD, they actually killed a woman who they saw uh, philosophizing and writing. And hmm. that was the end of that. So.
1: That's interesting. Yeah. And so, you know, to wrap it all up, They, The ancient Egyptians can't be really said to be feminist, like they didn't have marches for women's votes and stuff like that. There's nothing that's exactly analogous to what we think is feminism today. But at the same time, historians note that women were actually... Paid the same amount like uh uh the for the same job women would get the same amount of, mon- uh, of uh, wages as a man and that's something that historians know like we're still struggling with today so in that in that sense you know even though uh ancient egypt was a very patriarchal society uh it was really curious and had of its time in terms of uh, gender issues
0: And if you want to learn even more about ancient Egyptian society, be sure to check out this article and others pertaining to the pharaohs and Cleopatra, et cetera, on HowStuffWorks.com.
1: And while you're there, be sure to check out our blog, Stuff You Missed in History Class, Candace and I write on uh, once a day. And in the interim, be sure to keep sending
0: us emails at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com.